Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Alrighty, happy Wednesday. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, sitting alongside my co-founder, Mr. Jeffrey Gannon. He's back with us this week. Jeff, how are you doing over there? I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you doing? Did you enjoy your, your week vacation? Uh, yeah. You didn't get to see my face, right? <laughs> You're good. So thank you. I'm doing great. You didn't even ask me, but I'm doing great. I think I asked you. Did no, you ask me? No, well, okay. they'll know. All right. Well, <laughs> we hope everyone's having a, a great week. We hope that you enjoyed last week's podcast with Ian Castle. Thank you so much to him again for coming on. Ian is awesome, and I greatly enjoyed that conversation and hope that you guys did too. Um, before we roll into today's podcast, just a little housekeeping. If you do want to follow us on Twitter, Feel free to follow me at, at Focused Compound. We are going to be referencing some stuff from Twitter. I post tons of investing content um, that a lot of people seem to like. And then every now and then I'll post like Q&As, uh, call for questions pretty much. And that's where we are going to be going over here today because I did a call for questions and we got a lot of questions to go over. Okay. So are you ready for it? Yep. So if you want to be a part of that in the future, be on the lookout for it. That's at Focused Compound on Twitter. And if you do want to follow Jeff's weekly memo that he does send out, mm-hmm. go to Focus Compounding. And on the homepage, you'll see a spot to enter in your email. And that will put you on that list for a Monday morning memo from Jeff on Investing Principle. So we're going to be going over the questions right now. Okay. First question, do you invest in cyclical stocks? Under what circumstances? That's a really good question. Um, generally, no. Uh, I mean, uh, not not very cyclical stocks. I have had success investing in some cyclical stocks that are like cyclically tied to um, the financial cycle or advertising cycles, things like that, where the stock responds more um, than the business. But when they're talking about things like materials, um, so like mining stocks, oil stocks, things like that, um, usually not. I did talk a little bit about KLX Energy Services, which is a spinoff of uh, KLXI, and that's a very cyclical stock um, potentially, but um, that would be the sort of thing that we, we would look at, yeah. Yeah, but you never, you don't ever like not invest in a company because it's cyclical, right? Um, I mean, like, does that is general, that actually a thought in your mind? or? Uh, yeah, I mean, in general, to be honest, um, over very long periods of time, like if you look at industries over a century or something, um, less cyclical industries will outperform more cyclical industries. Uh-huh. The reason is because of what a cycle is. So a cycle to happen isn't just some like mystical thing. It happens because of miscalculations by the companies involved in the industry. So it's usually some sort of group action where they're trying to better themselves individually, the firms, and so inadvertently cause something that hurts the whole industry. So they um, have too much capacity or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Um, so you have like the home building cycle or something similar to that. If you look at a list of the best performing industries over time, usually they are very not cyclical industries. Um, an example of like one of the most cyclical industries I could think of would be shipbuilding. So when I say one of the most cyclical, I mean one of the longest cycles. Okay. So like semiconductor is very cyclical, but has a very short cycle. Are you talking about like cruise ship builders or, uh, or like what? Any type of very big ship. Got it. Okay. Um, so it, it, 
because the demand here's the thing the demand is if you've been operating a ship for 20 years you could make it 22 23 years sure yeah. so if there's bad economic times or something that's what you do yeah so then you don't put in new orders for the ships and then you have a shipyard that isn't full of new orders you have all those problems that happen so it, it's a very very long cycle i can't think of an industry with a longer cycle than shipbuilding although um uh, you know, it, things like how long it takes to get a mine going and stuff is a long time too. But uh, I would probably say that shipbuilding is one of the longest. And then you have really short cycle things like semiconductors. And uh, you see that a lot with um, those sorts of stocks. Most of the stock questions I get about specific stocks where someone's really excited about it, who's a really smart person and a value investor, and I'm a little cautious for them to uh, about the stock, uh, you know, is usually a cyclical, to be honest. Really? It really attracts value investors because it has a low P or low EBD. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's how it always shows up yeah. on screeners. Yeah. I mean, when I talked about KLX uh, E, um, that's a stock that the only reason for being interested in is it was spun off without debt. Now it has debt because it just did an acquisition. Yeah. But it's a part of the cycle that's getting better. Um, it's not at the peak of the cycle, right? So it it was spun off not long after, a couple years after there had been a really bad part of the cycle. In fact, the company's history as a part of KLXI is basically part, uh, is a bad part of the cycle. It's never operated in a really good part of the cycle. So that's the interesting part about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, sure. Cool. I think that's a great answer. How do you think the portfolio of a family office should allocate very long-term horizon? I've said this before, but I think they should allocate to something that has returns that is similar to um, stocks but are not actually stocks. Have you looked at before, I don't know if it's Yale, it's one of the bigger endowments, Mm -hmm. and the way that they structure their portfolio is not like a typical, like they own like a bunch of different stuff. I think they even own like timber and like just their portfolio is just crazy. Well, like for instance, I've said, I think that if you have a really, really long term, we're talking like a, like I think I gave the example of like an endowment or something. Yeah. Um, that uh, it would, I would totally replace the typical bond portfolio part of it with timber. Yeah. Really? Timberland, yeah. Um, Is that because where rates are today? Because the, the returns are better over long periods of time. Like I just said about, you know, what are returns over 100 years or something. I don't sure. think you generally want to invest. My, my general feeling, um, how do I put this? I suggest investing in the, if you have a really long-term horizon, mm-hmm. um, I suggest investing in whatever asset classes and assets in general um, perform the best over very long periods of time, provided they aren't expensive when you buy them. So okay. I would just avoid over clearly overpaying for anything. So the first thing I would do is, can you allocate as much as possible to common stocks? Because common stocks perform the best, and high-quality businesses in common stocks. But they're often expensive. And so if they're more expensive than usual, don't buy them. And then look for the next thing and the next thing, you know. And it can be things, I mean, I talked a little bit about Timberland. We might talk about it later uh, because I know that people have asked questions <laughs> yeah. about uh, some stocks that yeah. have that. That people are interested in that for whatever reason. I guess I talk about Timberland more than most people do. But it can also be um, commercial real estate. It can also be um, farmland, which I know nothing about. But those sorts of things have long-term returns that are um, as good or better than bonds and um, yet aren't exactly correlated with, with common stocks. So there's sure. things that could be in the portfolio. Yeah, yeah I definitely think so. It's interesting because I just pulled up on my phone the Yale um, asset allocation for 2019. Mm-hmm. It says 26% absolute return, 18% venture capital, 15.5% foreign equity, 15% leveraged buyouts, 9.5% real estate, right. 6.5% bonds and cash, 6.5% natural resources, and then only 3% domestic equity. Oh wow! That's pretty. Isn't that surprising? That is very surprising. Yeah, 
Yeah, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I mean, I think domestic But the returns have been, like, I'm pretty sure very good, too. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Yale's 20-year asset allocation class performance remains strong. Domestic equities return 11%, 11.8%, besting the benchmark by 4.9% annually. I don't know, but I'm really surprised to see that it only makes up 3% of their portfolio. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess my general suggestion would be, you know, if you have a really long-term horizon, yeah. don't hold a lot of cash, uh, not bonds, um, higher quality assets. And, and so, for instance, people, some people own gold and things like that. Yeah. And I would say Timberland is a better investment or farmland or, or um, occupied com- commercial real estate is no. a better investment than, than gold. Because those things over the very long term are uh, have a relationship with inflation, so protection from it. Yep. And, and common stocks do to some extent. Um, but are things that earn a return on their own over time. They, mm-hmm. they generate it. And so just the highest quality assets you can find. So the highest quality businesses you can find. So that for me, I would say the highest industry group. So one of the first things I would do is look at what industries would I like for the really long term. So say you like, um, and by that I just mean that they're monopoly type businesses, high quality type businesses, things like that. Mm-hmm. I think I talked before about how like over the last hundred years or something, tobacco done really well, right? Yeah. And then something like coal or shipbuilding or something mm-hmm. hasn't done well. Well, you're looking at the future, things like um, if you can find things like online media, things like if you say you like Facebook and um, and Google, you know, and Alphabet and things like that. Well, then you would want to buy the, you, that would be on your sort of um, uh, top of your list. But then don't buy them when they're expensive. You know, so try to buy the best industries. Like I've talked about how I like certain industries, regional banks, yeah. uh, MROs, things like that. Industries with a little less competition, especially less cyclical industries. So high quality, high returns on equity and stuff. But do not buy them when they're trading above the n- levels they've on average traded at. But that's the way that you've always looked at it. You just say like, are we, you don't really make like a, I don't think you get too complex in it. You just right. say, where are we in the cycle? If five years, are we going to be higher than we are today or lower? Like when you mm-hmm. made the... Your, you know, when you invested in Frost, that right. was sort of your thought process that went into that. Right. Yeah. So I like regional banks, but I w- wanted to wait for an opportunity to buy it when I thought it was cheaper than normal. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that for like... You get um, to like the extreme points. Right. Yeah. And if you have a very long-term horizon, I don't think it. Um, you have to be cheap. But you, the one thing you have to avoid is not buying it when it's especially expensive. So don't buy into bubbles and things. You just have to avoid that. Otherwise, you can just buy high-quality, predictable companies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. I like this question. If okay. your favorite uncle, do you have a favorite uncle? <laughs> do you have a favorite uncle? I'm sure, yeah. Okay. If your favorite uncle left you $100,000 in his will under the condition that you have to buy one stock and hold it for 30 years, what would that stock be? I think that actually got the most favorites. A lot of people were interested in that one. Wow. I thought, a, that, I thought that was a pretty good question. That's a very hard question. Hmm. Um... <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good question. So you have to buy and you have to hold it for 30 years. My question to you is, would yeah. you buy a company that's more like a holding company, like a Berkshire Hathaway? Yeah, that's or would it be more... Obviously, yeah. Because, okay, but take Warren out of it. I'm saying any company that's sort of structured like that where they own multiple different businesses. So you kind of have that diversification in that regard. Right. Mm-hmm. Instead of you know betting on one company, like he said, where mm-hmm. it could potentially be like... You know, yes or no. I mean, it's like right. Charlie Munger during the um, Daily Journal meeting that I went to, I think 2017, maybe 2016. Okay. He was talking about how he was talking about diversification, how the Mungers own three different mm-hmm. assets, I guess he said, right. majority of the net worth Berkshire Hathaway, Costco, and Lie Lu's fund. Okay. And it's true, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, I, I understand the point that he was making about concentration. Um, 
you know, and he was saying that he thinks that they're well diversified. That's probably true, but I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is a very diversified business itself because they own so many different businesses. You Absolutely, know? yeah. So, would you do you think you would buy a company like that, more of a holding company, or maybe Berkshire's involved in insurance though? And what happens, you know, over thirty years or something, could it blow up? You know, that's a concern. yeah, sure. You know? I mean, we're talking about way after Buffett's there and things like that. Yeah. I don't know if I would buy a financial company because you do have that concern if you have to buy and hold it forever. Yeah. Um, there are concerns like that. Um, there's some, I know the company I said had the widest moat that I've ever seen is BWX Technologies, but it's involved in nuclear. There's a very small risk of some sort of nuclear event, but the liability from that is very high. What about like a bank that's been around for a very long time? Yeah, that's a possibility. But, you know, if it gets the wrong management in there for a long time, you have a problem. Yeah. If it was going to be a retailer, it would be Costco. But um, I wouldn't make it a retailer. So we can yeah, make that. that for, yeah. The, the obvious one is something that has, you know, um, mind share. Something that, I mean, the, the sorts of things that immediately come to mind would be like, um, I mean, the one that does immediately come to mind is Disney. Right, so that's really? the first thing that comes to mind. Just because it's been around for so long, it's kind of proven what the its assets time. are. Yeah, are things that yeah, and that can be reallocated over time. Um, there, you kind of can find what businesses have had really good success for really long time. So, um, some businesses that tend to be very um, have a very high chance of surviving for a really long time are anything that publishes some sort of intangible thing. So music publishing, game publishing, um, um, movie distribution, which is basically movie Why? Publishing. Because they just kind of get on with the times type of thing or what? Uh, it turns out to be an oligopoly. Yeah. And then each year it's hit or miss with what new titles you come out with. You build up a back catalog of things. But then each year you have these new things that come out and you kind of each have an equal chance of getting it. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes Disney does well and Paramount does badly. Sure. Yeah. But the, basically the top five or six movie studios, uh, the major movie studios today are the same ones that they were a very long time ago. A lot of book publishing is the same. Um, so th those are ones to consider. Yeah. Do you remember one time I asked you in our car, uh, one of our car rides, where we yeah. chat about stuff? I said, out of all the businesses that you have annualized, if you were to start one today, what yes. type of company would you start? Do you remember what you said? Like an arcade? Yeah, an arcade. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, why is that? I mean, it just kind of fits, right? The next 30 years or whatever, and you said an arcade. Yeah, right. Well, if it's in the right location. Yeah. If it's in the right location. Um, like there's one I've been to on the boardwalk in New Jersey. That's yeah. the right location. Um, it's a harder thing for like Dave and Buster's around here where anyone can come in, in a mall location. Can sure. But yeah, if you're in a, if you're in a tourist destination type location, yeah, you put very little, um, into it. There's almost no staff involved in it. People just come in and, and kind of runs themselves. Spend right? the money yeah. It. yeah. <laughs> and it's really successful that way. But you know, there are other things like that. I mean, um, there's tons of businesses that are similar to that. Uh, I think we talked to someone who talked about a rock climbing business. Uh, oh yeah, as an we did. exercise business and yeah. how good the economics were of that. And, yeah, you know, can you believe that? And I kind of thought about it and said, yes, I, I totally believe <laughs> yeah. that a rock climbing gym has amazing economics. But the problem with those, of course, with the gyms, like the you know, um, all the little exercise studios and things that they've opened up, is they do have amazing economics, but like um around where i live and stuff as soon as they open one up then they yeah. open another thing next to it. like they open a thing that's a spin class yeah and then next to they open a surf cycle thing, class and they open, yeah. yeah and they yeah. open a weight thing next to that and then they open a yoga thing next to that and so that's the problem so you have to it has to be some business where it's closed off in some way so i don't know a, a, you know a major movie studio it would be pretty good yeah yeah i would look into some sort of intent something that has rights to entertainment so properties. this is if you were to hold a stock for the next 30 years 
Are you saying like if you were to start up your own company for the next? No, 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 no. If I had to hold it for the next 30 years. Yeah. yeah. I think I'd want it to be something that's not financial. And I, if I'm going to own it for 30 years, I really don't want it to use debt, you know? Sure. Um, but any of these things can run into problems and con- conglomerates and things like that. I mean, we talked about Berkshire Hathaway, but look at GE. So, yeah. you know. Sure. And, and that would have seemed to be a diversified thing. Yeah. Did you look at that company recently? Since uh, everything's happened to it? GE? Yeah, GE. Yeah, I did write it up for the website. Yeah. yeah. And I've looked at it. Um, so... If you want to read that, focus I, component. Yeah, I mean, I wrote it up mostly because I was interested in what if they break up yeah, and if there are different yeah. parts that might come available, yeah. Crazy. Alrighty. Has the latest news on BWXT changed your thesis at all? It's hard not to get excited reading about the company's projects, but it's difficult to, to grasp on how serious the weld effects might be for them. Right. So BWX Technologies is an um, engineering company, and yep. the most important parts are um, uh, critical nuclear components. But... The issue that they're talking about there is a problem with um, uh, submarines, nuclear subs, um, but it's not a part of the um, uh, critical nuclear components. That's a part that I think's uh, missile tubes. I think that's what they're talking about there. Because um, they also have a missile tubes business. Um, uh, it is. So here's the thing. Uh, Can I add some context? Yeah, sure. Okay. So the stock was trading around, looks like above $60. I'm guessing this is why he's bringing it up. It's probably back in play. It was trading above $60. Looks like I'm looking on my phone, maybe like $61. And it fell to a low of $44.13 within the past couple of days. So right. I'm guessing that's why he's probably asking about it, just yep. for people that... And we are recording this on, what's today? The 12th, November 12th? Okay. It's going up next week. So yeah. All right. And um, you can go and look at the earnings call transcript where they talk a little bit about it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's an engineering issue. So the first thing you should know is that whatever they say about it, um, like if they say, well, it's isolated to this one incident and it wasn't actually, I mean, not this one incident, but it's isolated to this one um, project and it's not actually in any subs that we already uh, delivered and things like that, which they may say, um, you know, expect it to get worse. So always expect it to get worse, just like you should always expect cost overruns and things and engineering stuff the first time they do something. However... Uh, this company is BWX Technologies, which is different from Babcock and Wilcox Enterprises. I sold Babcock and Wilcox Enterprises because they had issues that really concerned me about projects they were doing with like waste to energy. Um, I think this is different from that. So I would say for the long term, I would be interested in looking at this company. This is an opportunity to look at BWX Technologies. However, I do want to say that for the shorter term, if we're talking about like within the next quarter in the next year with an engineering problem expected to get worse expect unpleasant surprises expect that sort of thing but if you're looking at this to own for five years or something are you and you're thinking well now it's 40 something instead of 60 something the stock is this the time to look at it and i'd say yeah it yeah. is the time to look at it so it's definitely time to learn about the business now um short term it, you always should expect engineering stuff to get worse but this doesn't sound to me like a problem that would um, be devastating to the company yeah got it Cool. I like this one. It's kind of, I guess, along the lines of the 30-year question. What do you think about the buy and hold forever strategy? Uh, it's an interesting one. Um, I you want to know my thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, who says it a lot? Warren Sir Warren. Yeah. And if he was managing a lot of capital, the size of a lot of people that are listening to this podcast mm-hmm. are holding today, do you think he would be no. a buy and hold forever? No. Exactly. If he was managing the kind of money they are. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that saying, I mean, sounds great. I understand, like, the mindset that goes into it, mm-hmm. I, which I completely agree with, right? Concentration and right. being very selective, et cetera. But I don't think if he was managing 5, 10, 15, 50, even 100 million, he wouldn't sort of employ that 
mindset. You no, probably have a lot more turnover than he does, obviously. I don't think it's the optimum way of doing it. Now. Yeah. However, um, it's interesting because a large number of people index. And Which I, is sort of a buy and hold forever, right? Yeah, except yeah. I'm not sure that it is better than buying and holding forever. Yeah. So indexing is slightly more complicated. You have slightly higher fees than you would if you bought and hold forever. Um, and yet I'm not sure that you end up getting a different result. Um, I, people like it because they compare themselves to the index and, you know, the industry does a lot of selling on the idea of this, but it's an interesting question that I've looked at many times of trying to figure out, well, but why is it better to index than it is to buy and hold a group of stocks now because of when people's money flows into their accounts because of how they're saving and stuff, it makes some sense. But why are you doing the actual process of trying to rebalance and indexing things over time, adding a little bit of cost to sure. all that? Yeah. Um, when you could just buy and hold forever. And what would it be if you bought and hold some stocks that some businesses that you liked forever instead of owning an index? Would it be better or worse? Um, so I think buy and hold makes sense as an alternative to indexing. I wouldn't say that it makes sense as an alternative to buying and planning to sell in three to five years or something when you find something better. The reason why you don't we don't buy and hold forever is basically because we find something that's even cheaper. Sure. Usually it's a price. It's an opportunity thing. Yeah, yeah, it's that the thing that you bought. Like I bought BWX Technologies and it, you know, um, it rose, well, it more than doubled pretty quickly. And um, then some other things go down in price. And that's why you sell one and buy the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I agree. Any follow-up thoughts on KEWL in the face of a lumber downturn and delayed REIT conversion? Yeah, I don't really care about the REIT conversion. Yeah. Um, I mean, we'll see what happens. I think a lot of the selling pressure has been because the whole board situation, probably like them selling, right? It might be, yeah. So um, I I like KEWL a lot more now than I did when I first looked at it. And the reason for that is you were looking at it around $100 per share, and now it's trading... About eighty dollars yeah, per share. Yeah, we wrote about it and stuff. It was everywhere from like ninety eight to hundred. And I think you thought it would be worth anywhere like what one hundred fifteen dollars or something like that in your report. Uh, I wrote about it. Yeah, something like uh, that. I'm it not might sure. have been. I don't remember the exact appraisal. I I know that it was around a hundred. Yeah. And I said that it's very hard to come up with an appraisal less than a hundred. Yeah, it's, there you it's go. Possibly hard. It seemed. Um, I think some other people suggested prices as high as like one twenty or something, and that that's probably very possible. Um. I like it. I like it a lot more now that the board that's in control now uh, is there. And I really liked the uh, letter that they put out and the things that they're saying. As far as the reconversion, so there's like the possibility of a reconversion. And um, uh, that was never something that necessarily excited me. Um, It was an issue that the board had talked about. Obviously, they have tax issues, but there should be, you know, I think they'll try to find some way. There's a very large um, owner who now controls the board. Yep. um, Which is a hedge fund. That they will um, try to find some way of a tax-efficient way of if they do a sale of yeah, the entire company. They've been in the business for like, what, seven years, right? A long time. I, they might have owned that stock for 10 years. Yeah. yeah. And they haven't really made money on it. No. Yeah. So, so uh, that's Cornwall Capital. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, uh, yeah, I like it better now because of who's in charge. Um, the decisions that they made recently seemed fine to me. Um, and it just seems like they're think, ter- looking at their options and stuff. So uh, because the price is lower and because of the um, communications we've gotten from the board, I like it a lot better today than I did then. Yeah. Cool. How do you react to extreme price moves? Do you double up, double down, do nothing, et cetera? Hmm. It depends. Is that what you're thinking? I guess it depends. That's what you're thinking. Um, but I think it depends more on what my 
portfolio looks like, what other things are in it. Yep. Because I will double down um, if I see it as a big trade up, especially in terms of safety and quality, mm-hmm. like really safety. Especially. What do you mean by that though? Um, if I can sell things that I think are stocks, that I think are less safe and lower quality to buy something that I think is more safe and higher quality because it's gotten cheaper from placing your trades. I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it often means more concentration because I'm selling my fifth best idea to buy more of my first best idea when yeah. that happens. Now, if my fifth best idea dropped a lot in price, I don't think that you'd see a lot of buying of that probably. Um, because I don't think that it, usually the reason why something's my fifth favorite idea instead of my first favorite is not, um, price. It's because it's, a little less clear what's going to happen. I don't like the management as much, sure. perhaps not as safe, you know, any of those things. So yeah, in general, when I can trade up, especially on safety, on the certainty of what I think is going to happen, um, like to buy own more thing with the wider moat, but I'm really looking at a trade off, uh, within my own portfolio. Yeah. And so, um, there have been some big drops that I've seen. Um, I, I had a stock that went up, um, probably 50% or something and then went, down even more than what I originally bought it at, and I bought more of it, mm-hmm. so I can think of that case. Um, did you double down? Uh, did I double down? Pretty much, pretty uh, not quite double down, but yeah, significant, significant, yeah. Cool. Next question: Another BWXT. Okay, so it's definitely a a uh, interesting play right now. Do you have an opinion on the acceleration of U.S. carrier production, and more importantly, it appears. BWXT appears to be trying to diversify their business. Most notably, they acquired Nordian, a major supplier of medical isotopes. Love the show. Thanks. Okay. I'd add that. Yeah, I'm not sure if they're trying to diversify. Thanks for listening. Okay. I'm not sure <laughs> if they're trying to diversify or not. Um, they're just, their expertise is in nuclear stuff, and that's a very small part of the um, economy. And so there's not a lot that they can buy and stuff like that. Um, it is true that they did diversify, but I don't know that that means they want to be less reliant on the business that they have as much as they just don't want to just buy back stock and pay dividends. You yeah. Know, they they want to grow the company and stuff as most big public companies do. Um, so, uh, yeah, the Nordion thing seems fine. Um, I had some slight familiarity with the company in its previous, um, it was part of something that had, um, uh, that I had read about and stuff. So I, mm-hmm. I knew a little bit about it. Yeah. And I think I mentioned in uh, a follow up on BWX technologies that they, had, they were doing a little work for NASA and things like that. So they do all of those things. Um, I, I think it's a very interesting business and I think that people should look at it. Um, most of the things that they do are still very, very, even the most competitive things that they do are less competitive than what most companies are in. There's less players in it. There's more regulation of it. There's just a lot of risks to it because of how nuclear works. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to caution that this is not a very cheap stock, even if it's dropped a lot because it went up a lot. Yeah. And uh, after the spinoff, which and I bought it before the spinoff. Um, and on top of that, when it does acquisitions and things, they're not at really cheap prices because people know that these are wide moat type things. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Another question on another stock that we wrote about, which we were actually going to buy. Okay. But we didn't mm-hmm. for the reason that's referenced. Any thought on the Pendril reverse stock split? Yeah, that's my only thought, which is that we were going to buy it. And yeah. They did a reverse stock split, which... Um, which went from like what, like $600 to some uh, crazy amount, right? Yeah. It, was it 600 something in that yeah. area? Yeah, it was 600 something. Um, and Seward's trading today. Okay. And it did a um, reverse stock split then. Yeah. 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 So that made it very hard to buy. 
and because we manage um, individual accounts and not a fund, yeah, it wasn't possible for us to buy. Um, if I'm looking at the right thing, yeah. one hundred sixty nine thousand yes, dollars per that share. Sounds, yes, yeah. that's perfectly right. Yeah, yeah, it went from you know, I don't know, under $700 or something to uh, 170,000. It was kind of like low key too, right? Not a lot of people knew about it. Well, it was a dark stock. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is true. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, we were going to buy it. Yeah. I had written it up and, um, uh, it made sense to buy it because it, um, there was a point where we could have bid for it where it was trading below net cash Yeah, and it had some positive cash flow from um, patents and it had huge net operating loss carry forwards. Um, and then, you know, they did what they did basically to push out, um, you know, minor passive minority shareholders mm-hmm. and, um, concentrate, you know, control more than themselves probably and, um, operate in the dark, which we already knew they were doing. So it was kind of a two-step process getting, stopping, re- um, registering with the SEC and everything and then uh, filing with the SEC and then, um, doing the reverse stock split. So it's sort of a way of them basically going private. Yeah. So yeah, we would have bought it if we could have, but we, that reverse stock split stopped us from being able to. That's right. Alrighty, next one. What do you think about the current high state of profit margins? Um, they're likely to revert somewhat. Yeah, yeah, because you have. Here's the thing. So profit margins, net profit margins, right? Net profit margins are the result of a company making money. Um, uh, the private sector making money. Um. And then having to share that money in some way sure. with workers, with um, lenders, and with the government. So recently you had a corporate tax cut. But the question is that you ask when you think about profit margins is, okay, are workers likely to be paid more in the future um, relative to the economy? Are, um, are lenders likely to collect more interest relative to the economy? And is the government likely to collect more taxes relative to the economy? Now, it turned out that the um, government is collecting less relative to the economy now. So you had a tax cut. Um, But I would expect that uh, wages relative to um, corporate profits would go up over time. And I would expect that um, interest charges relative to corporate profits would go up over time. So you're going to have some reversion for that reason. You have very low inflation, um, very low wage inflation. And, you know, so it's... So you think it's going to revert... Um, a little bit. Yeah, we'll see. But I mean, but those are things that you can think for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, we have very, very low unemployment. Um, it's very hard for companies to fill positions. I can think of lots of companies that have a lot that, um, have fewer workers than they would like to have, but they're not yet willing to pay them a lot more to fill all those positions. So, you know, there's a certain inertia there. They're used to paying us, you know, $16 an hour. Then, if they're only filling six of their 10 spots that they want to fill, um, they're not necessarily going to say, okay, let's start offering 20 right away. Sure. Yeah. yeah. How much time do you spend on quarterly earnings or updating your Excel models? If any. Yeah. Almost none. Yeah. I do have a watch list of stocks. So things I don't own that I check regularly. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I actually, um, just like, what, what do you mean by that? Like checking the stock price, checking up on like the yeah. news, the press releases, mm-hmm. yes. earnings, everything, all that stuff. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time, not looking at the stocks that I own, I spent a lot of time looking at the stocks that I might research and buy. Yes. Yeah. So um, so what I do there is um, I have an Excel sheet with about 12 stocks in it that are the next 12 stocks that I would research to potentially buy. So it's your, your lineup, if you will. Yes. 
and I already know the next sort of two that I'll research, and then the others below that. It's a question of you know how their prices move around and what. In the learned. order that you put it in, if Absolutely. people want to copy you, is the ones yeah. from top to bottom, the ones that you're most interested in, and yes. you go down like that. Yeah, yeah and, and that's the way that he structures his portfolio as well. When he was talking yeah. earlier, how he may not like his his fifth idea as much as the first idea, he always puts out the portfolio one to five on um, the company that he likes the best at the moment. So then if he finds something that he likes better than the yeah. fifth, well, the fifth gets sold and then the new one gets on. Yeah, like in the managed accounts right now, I think the third, fourth, and fifth most um, uh, biggest positions happen to be about the same percentage size. Mm-hmm. But I actually have, uh, I know which I like third best, which I like fourth best, mm-hmm. and which I like fifth best. So I do keep track of that. And so I know which stock I would sell first. So that is a good question in that um, I do follow up with the stocks I own in terms of ordering them. Now, the truth is I don't spend a lot of time, if I usually don't spend a lot of time thinking about the stock I like the best. Because that's not the marginal stock. It's not the one, the first one I would sell. It's the last one I would sell. So where do you start at four or five? Yeah. So my least favorite stock is the one I've thought of the most. Yeah. The least favorite stock I own is the stock I thought of the most. Sure. And my most favorite stock I don't own is the stock I've thought of the most. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. it makes total yeah. sense. Yeah. And because those are the ones that could switch positions. Yeah. Basically, mm-hmm. I could sell the thing that I like that I own but like the least, and buy the thing that I don't own but like the most. So the things that I don't look at a lot to be honest unless i'm unless there's a possibility of increasing um the allocation to them if we're not done buying them or something you know if it's still an issue of how concentrated we are or something like that um except for that i don't spend a lot of time looking at my very favorite positions i really don't because i i've liked them the most and I still like them more than the other things. I look at the you know the problem children in yeah. the portfolio, right? Uh-huh, sure. I look at the ones that I'm most likely to sell, the ones that I'm most concerned about. And usually that's an issue of like they have the least wide moat, they have the mo- the management I like the least. They're not quite as safe, you know. Right now we have a portfolio with no debt in it, but if we had a stocks that had debt, they would probably be the stock with debt in it, you know. And that's when you structure the portfolio the way that we do where we don't raise cash for the sake of raising cash Correct, yeah. unless we're going to use that cash to buy something else. Right. That's sort of the way that people should go about doing it. I mean, yeah. at least obviously that's what we think because that's what we do. Yeah, Because they're illiquid stocks, you know, yeah. sell things and then get a cash position, but it's only because they already are planning to buy something else. But I think when you do that, though, it almost adds a psychological thing that you're not just going to sell because of market movements or right. whatever. You're purely selling for investing situations or because of the business or because you like yeah. a new business. Yeah. I think I said that before kind of to someone that I have a, an ordinal uh, idea of the ordinal values. I have a rank value of everything in my mind. Yeah. I don't have a real idea. Like a lot of people have this idea of like if it hits $45, I'll sell it. I have more. I like it better than stock C, yeah, but yeah. less than stock A. Yeah. And that in my mind is what I'm changing is that over time as the stock becomes more expensive or something, I, it goes from being my favorite stock, my first favorite, down to my third, fourth, fifth, and then eventually it drops off the list. Sure. You know, and that's when I sell it. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a good way to go about doing it. We have one more question. Okay. It says, does it concern you that the bulk of the rise in the main U.S. indices is due to a few big companies? A lot of companies, and they put in parentheses, I'm referring to the U.K., haven't moved much this year despite having some decent updates. Isn't this similar to the dot-com boom slash bust? Uh, it's become more similar recently because just stocks have been like majority of the gains have come from a few companies or what? 
Yeah. I mean, most of the stocks that I look at, either stocks that I own or would own or something, have not um, performed that well. They haven't performed that badly, but it's been a long time that they certainly haven't been going up um, a, a lot with the market. Sure. Um, and uh, so you don't have a very um, wide amount of, of different, a broad amount of different um uh, stocks going up, especially sure. you know the smaller ones and things like that, and it has become I, I would say in the la- just the last couple of years really there has been a change where there's so there became so much focus on um, well we talked a little bit about like Fang stocks sure. right Facebook or, Apple Netflix Google right Amazon yeah and, and um, uh, Bitcoin sure marijuana stocks um and uh i've also seen it with like uh tesla where's bitcoin trading right. today i'm just so, curious six thousand three hundred fifteen mm-hmm. so uh i just mean the amount of yeah, attention that sure. goes into those yeah, sorts absolutely. of things and so little the craze pa- paid yeah. on evaluations yeah. and things like that so that is similar to the dot-com and that isn't what i saw until the last few years so this is a, a bull market that's been going on a really long time and although the overall market got slowly more and more expensive, we didn't see it sort of these pockets of um, obsession by the market and by news and by people on the internet and everything about just a few sorts of stories. And now we do see more of that. I would say that's true, mm-hmm. that there's a real focus on um, some sorts of things, which is good if you're a stock picker. It's not bad. Sure. So you were saying, are you concerned? No, I actually did well in the dot-com bust. The dot-com bust, for, first of all, in terms of relative performance, by far the best I've ever done is the um, bust of the dot-com and the following recession. Was that because you weren't invested in dot-com names? So it was like more traditional it, value They were completely unaffected. Yeah. I was invested in things like um, a local grocery thing. Um, so when like the, all those dot com stocks were getting smoked, were those companies getting crushed as well, or did no. sort of the rotation happen where value no, came they didn't at, get crushed yeah. at all? I mean, honestly, my, in this bull market, I've not done better than I've not. Sorry, in this bull market, yeah, in this bull market, I've not done better than I did during the dot com bust. Mm-hmm. I did just as well during the dot com bust as I've done in the year since then. Mm-hmm. Now the market's done much better from two thousand eight to today. Than it did in 2000, 2001, 2002, right? Sure. But those years, I did just as well as I'm, I've done recently. There was like there was no effect to it. Um, it but like 1999 was tough, that, which is when I was starting investing around then. Is that was really tough. You underperformed. Um, things that you owned that were boring and cheap got even cheaper for no reason. And um, is that kind of like a lot what we're seeing today? Yeah, so it hadn't yeah. been until really recently, and now it is becoming that way. Because it becomes that way in things like, for instance, um, when you talk to someone, like they'll say, this is a little bit more close to the dot-com, which is that I will now talk to someone, and they'll want to talk about Tesla. Sure. But they won't want to talk about General Motors. Yeah. So they basically don't know what General Motors is priced at. They don't. They haven't valued it. They haven't done whatever, but they really want to work on looking at Tesla. Mm-hmm. That's what happened in the dot-com era, which is that – it wasn't just I like this kind of company better than that kind of company. It was I'm only interested in the internet type yeah, company. Sure, the old economy companies I'm not interested in at all. And so now that's what you saw what happened in Bitcoin, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, not even a year ago, no one was. Re- they were just all interested in Bitcoin, right? Yeah, 
And so th- that's interesting, and it is similar to what happened in the the dot com era. It was interesting to me was you see you saw it ran up to like what was it twenty five thousand ish or somewhere in there. Fit, yeah. I don't know a lot, mm-hmm. and then liquidity started to come right. Didn't they offer Bitcoin futures? So I felt right. like all the pros, all the right. people that had all these gains, we're just going to start selling to the suckers, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean that in the nicest way. But that's <laughs> typically what, you, what happens yeah. when Grandma Lily, shout out to you if you're listening, asks mm-hmm. me about Bitcoin who knows nothing about it. You know, that's it's crazy. It's kind of like well, 20, 2008, right? When all the big banks knew everything was happening and right. when they, they started deleverage or like getting the risk off their balance sheet and just giving it to the individuals. Yeah. And, and Bitcoin and some of the things like that fall into the category of some of the stuff that happened in the dot com thing, which yeah. is that there were some uh, companies which are around today mm-hmm. and are some of the biggest businesses around um, that were around then. But there were also things that had no, you know, um, that were not real businesses and that really shouldn't have been sold to the public and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just, you know, and th- there's a little bit of that now. And especially, I mean, I um, manage the managed accounts and stuff, do a lot of stuff with over, um, over-the-counter stocks, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you can imagine what over-the-counter stocks are really liquid and get all the attention and everything. They're not the stocks that I buy. Yeah. But, I mean, I spent a lot of time on that website looking up the different stocks and everything. And, you know, it is a lot of marijuana stocks and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of very different sorts of things than what is um, the sorts of stocks that we look at. It's a lot of stories, a lot of things that build into bigger trends. But do you think that the marijuana industry has probably a more promising future than, I mean, other sort of what could be classified as boom and bust type of, you know, industries? Well, the difficult thing is the business model of how they make money. Sure. Right? So I I don't disagree that the future of marijuana is bright. Mm-hmm. But about particular companies, yeah, I do. Because it has to be that how is this company going to make a lot of money? How is this one going to be the, the one that's dominant in this uh, space? Somebody asked me, they're like, do you guys have uh, marijuana stocks on your website? And I was like, no, nah, we don't. And he was like, I'm just actually kidding. I completely blew over my head. I had no idea. Oh, okay. He was just messing around. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean. What but, about the recent volatility in the market? Does that, do you think anything of that? I mean, when you talk about like this cycle, yeah. I guess you could say, right? Mm-hmm. You were just talking about how it reminds you a lot like, you know, the tech boom or dot com, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of it. Does, yeah. does this recent volatility that we've experienced in the market sort of pique your interest at all or does it even go into your thought process yeah i like the volatility a lot mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked because you're a stock picker yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think we talked about this in a very very early podcast we did a podcast on volatility in the markets or something like that yeah because it was the first day of the, that year that there had been a big um, yeah drop in the market and uh yeah i like it because it changes the price of the stocks that i might sell and buy mm-hmm. well the most frustrating thing is when you have consistently higher moving prices at very, very slow intervals of increases. You know, when the market's going up 1% a day pretty consistently. Yeah. That's the worst thing for a stock picker because there's very little volatility. You can't sell one thing that's getting more expensive to buy something that's cheaper. Um, and yet everything's getting more expensive and more, uh, diff- you know, the things are sort of falling off your list of things you'd like to mm-hmm. research. So, no, yeah, I, I like it a lot when the, there's a lot of volatility there. Um, although... Like that question was about the the sort of leading stocks are very different from the sorts of things we own. So there doesn't seem to be much of a relationship between if the market drops a lot or something because of FANG-type stocks. Yeah. That really is very different from what might be happening in our portfolio that mm-hmm. day. And so it is a big disconnect um, from those two. So sometimes it's not like the stocks that I might buy are actually getting that much cheaper, you know. 
Um, yeah, but the but the dot com thing was a great time to be a value investor. Great time. Follow, you know, when it, yeah, when it actually cracked. And, yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, because then you don't own those sorts of things. Yeah. So cool. I mean, I mean, it was like I said, I was, I had the things I owned at that time were uh, video game stocks, food stocks, uh, you know, a supermarket, um, just the most boring things that you could imagine. Yeah, and not the leading in 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 any of the cases that I can think of, not the leading one. That was the other thing that really happened then, is that all the focus was just on the leader. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that you've seen that now. Like uh, I'm guess we mentioned Costco for a moment before. It's not like Costco stock is really cheap and Amazon is incredibly expensive. That's the sort of thing that you would see in the, in the dot com era, is that you would have that two companies that look similar in a lot of ways, and yet one of them, because it's internet stuff, is at an insane valuation, and the other one's really cheap. And the part that I'm not seeing is the other one's really cheap. That's unfortunately the part that I'm not seeing. <laughs> there was just a very wide gap. It wasn't just that the market was super expensive in the dot com uh, period. It was that there were actually some really good bargains. Some of the best bargains that I've seen. Uh, actually were during the boom years, uh, the end of the boom years of the dot-com, mm-hmm. which is so unusual and interesting that you had a great economy, a really strong performing stock market and everything, and yet I could find cheap, boring um, companies that just were predictable and stuff at, sure. at really nice P um, ratios. And I don't see that part of it today. Yeah, Cool. We actually have another question that just came in that okay. I think is, is good to go over. It says, many value investors are shameless cloners. You're quite transparent with your investments. Now that you have managed accounts, do you see a problem with people who are tailcoat investing with you if they don't have a minimum of 100K to put in your account or for any other reason? Question mark. That's a good question. A great question. Yeah. Um, I guess we should say that one reason that we have a minimum is actually that concern, I guess, if that makes sense to mm-hmm. people. Because their managed accounts are not a fund, people can see what we own, what we're uh, the moment we start buying something, yeah. or selling something. Mm-hmm. If, if they're a client, and there was some concern with that, because some people said, well, "I'm going to put in a really small part part of my uh, money with you, and then I'm going to manage money um, separately for myself." And that does become a bit of a thing, like, "Well, are they, you know, yeah. is it about ideas rather yeah, than sure. about about us managing their money?" Um, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I guess I have a different opinion about ideas than some people do that way. I I mean, we talk about ideas on this podcast. I write about them and stuff. I don't think that saying the name, um, saying cool or something, um, means that 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 will... um, Yeah, I mean, maybe they think we're talking about like C-O-O-L, right? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, uh, So the ticker on that one's K-E-W-L. Yes. Um, I don't think... I I look at a lot of different stocks, and I pass on so many of them. Well, Um, here's the thing, right? We talked about KLXI Energy... Yeah, uh, energy services for so long. I don't uh, probably a lot of people probably thought we were going to buy it. Yeah, and we didn't buy it. We talked a lot about it, and it, it definitely looked interesting. Mm-hmm. We could say that. Yeah, but we didn't buy it as of this recording. We do not own yes. Galaxy. People probably thought we did. Yeah, that's true. No, people think that I own a lot of stocks I don't own, and I get emails a lot that say, "I know that you own this stock," and actually didn't own it. I just wrote about it a lot, um, and I never said that I owned it. Yeah, I didn't think I gave any indication that I owned it, but. Also, you have to remember that a lot of people reading things are reading things only for people who own the stock, yeah. especially people who own 30 or 50 stocks or something or who are trading frequently. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's something that I, I talk about a lot, the ideas. I think it helps investing um, to talk through the ideas with someone, to write them up. Um, and I usually – it depends. I've had some ideas that I buy pretty quickly, and so I guess um, – you know, someone could coattail ride on that. Um, I have to say, I don't think I invest in ideas with catalysts. You know, I mean, 
like if you were going to coattail right on something, you know, you should read Clark Street Value Blog or something. Yeah, which it's is, more of like a special situ- situations. Yeah, yeah that but, is written out much closer to the time. Yeah. That, that it happens and then is, uh, I think, sold more quickly. Yeah. Um, so, I, and I saw that with like uh, NACO. A lot of people, a lot of value investors seem to buy NACO and uh, Hamilton Beach brands, buy NACO before the spinoff, mm-hmm. but buy NACO and Hamilton Beach brands for the spinoff, then sell it a few weeks later. And then over the next year, those stocks came down a lot when I thought the business performance was fine. Yeah. And then the stocks came back up. Um, and I think that that is typical of how a lot of, um, Value investors think, which is that those spinoffs and things are, are situations to be played for um, that game, which is fine because you know if you can if you can time it right and you get a fifty percent gain or something or a thirty percent gain in a matter of months, that's amazing. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people are in it very short term on those sorts of things. So I think about ideas with catalysts and things like that. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I read Value Investors Club. And like I've said before, I'm not sure I've ever gotten an idea from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a lot of blogs, and it's hard to say what ones I've found an idea that I uh, like from that and buy. Um, I did say that I got NACO from, I was gonna say, didn't you say from NACO? Clark Street Value. Yeah. yeah, although I didn't know the company already, but that the that particular post really drew my attention to mm-hmm. be the next on top of my research list. But does it worry you, though, about people riding our coattails? Um. I mean, no. we don't really post our ideas. So far, it hasn't worried me. Yeah, I should say. Um, so far, it hasn't worried me in large part because I don't think there's much coattail riding going on, and certainly not for the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, what little coattail riding I've um, I'm aware of seems to they get bored too fast and don't keep doing it but i have talked to a few people who because i wrote reports on something or because i talked about something did buy it and hold it for a long time um so there are some times where they did that although mostly that's like what they're saying really is um you drew my attention to it so then i researched it Mm -hmm. and that's true that you are causing discovery of it that way yeah I mean, it's a potential issue in some very, very small stocks. It's something that we've thought about before. Um, it's a larger issue, I think, with just the illiquidity of it and things like that. Sure, yeah. And having to be careful about that. And um, I think it's most. It's not like they're front-running us. I mean, no. I guess there's a difference between front-running and coattail riding. Yeah. I mean, yes, there is a difference. Mm-hmm. They can't front-run because if they, if people are following you, they can't front-run you. Yeah. Um, but no, but I mean, it does it cause a problem in that, um, I guess the two things, one is like, is it causing a problem that are, do you feel like you're giving away something for free to people? An idea. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I guess you feel like you're giving something away for free that way. But I mean, we're doing a free podcast. We write up things on the website. We have a, a paid, um, member site. Um, I, you try to give value to people. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that the performance we will get in the managed accounts would be different than what they would get if they were just a member of the site. And I think that what you would, the ideas you would get from reading the site are a lot different from what you get from this podcast. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we do talk about things on the podcast and um, on the member site too. Um, And, you know, and also the other thing is like not to get too inside baseball about all these things, but the truth is it's not the number of people who hear about something in cases where I know that someone did some coattail riding. It was just that they were managing a fairly substantial amount of money. Sure. That it had any effect on anything. And actually that's not from our managed accounts. That's just other times that I wrote on sites that had, um, 
I sometimes wrote some articles that got sort of widespread um, for whatever reason, a lot of page views or something. And in some cases, I know some people talk to me about uh, it. And um, if they manage a pretty substantial amount of money, even if they didn't put a lot of their portfolio into it. Moves it. Yeah, if they're a big portfolio manager, they can move some things. Yeah. I did have a thing where I did um, wrote up net nets for a site at one time. And I, Nate talked a little bit about the same idea that he didn't like that one problem was that even when he wrote something up and said, this is not good, it would spike. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I had that. And, um, is that just, you think algorithms picking up like keywords and stuff? Or do you think people like when you literally would say like, do not buy this and yeah, because it's so thinly traded or what do you think? Uh, it would just draw attention to it. So it was something that had, had so little attention paid to it that sure. suddenly when there was attention paid to it. I mean, the reason why something's illiquid is because there's very little attention paid yeah. to it. It's mm-hmm. not just Ill, – it has to be illiquid for a reason about what how much people are investing in. Yeah, and stuff. sure. And that's usually why is that there's so little attention paid to it. So, um, yeah, that was the le- least pleasant part of um, uh, writing about things was when I was writing a net-net thing um, because I people would read it qu- – the people wouldn't even really read the report and yeah. stuff. They would just act on it to buy. try to buy this yeah. thing because of the idea of net net is a formulaic thing. The stock's not well known. It would cause the biggest move in the stock that had ever happened before. Which only stuff. attracts more people. Yeah, come and in. then it attracts momentum Traders, type things. Yeah. And, and people are saying, why is it moving yeah, and stuff? Sure. I did not like doing that. Um, and, pumping it. Yeah. And that was the thing where I had to pick from a list of net nets when I was writing for that site. Um because it had to qualify as a net net. Mm-hmm. So all I was trying to do is pick the like least bad, uh, whatever, you know, th- the thing I was most okay with and could say the most about. Sure. That was on a list of net nets. But just talking about, they're just not talked about that much and stuff. So when you talk about something like that, it does draw attention to it. Sure. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't, in general, I'm not as worried about coattail riding things as most people are, I guess. Um, what do you think? I would agree. Like I said, it's not like the front. I mean, it depends how you look at it, right? If we're bringing, <clears throat> if we're bringing, excuse me, if we're bringing attention to this idea that we have that not a lot of people are looking at in a way, I guess that could only help us out if we're being honest about it. But oh, yeah, I, I understand, sure, I understand sure. other people potentially getting stuff for free. That's what they're thinking about is that they get it for free. But you could look at it. I mean, you said yourself, right? I mean, Clark Street Value is a free website, but you got an idea from there. So I guess it kind of, it all works out, right? I've any ideas that I've gotten, the best ideas I've gotten have been free. Mm-hmm. So, and even when we tri- that's the other thing that I should say though, even like for the website focus compounding and for my write ups and stuff, when I did reports on a stock, I always tried to make it that the the fact I was saying a stock's name was the least important part of what sure. I was doing, yeah, and that it would be useful to to read the report beyond that, and then it would be have a timeless quality to it that way, especially. Why do investors put out their presentations at the Irish Zone or mm-hmm. on the internet? Why? Do, it's because they want to, yeah, and we you know, bring exposure that. to it. Yeah, we've I mean, about that's, that I mean, so I don't, it. yeah, but I understand the whole getting it for free. But I don't know if people want to thank us. You know what they can do? <laughs> <laughs> they can rate and review our they podcast. Can rate and review our podcast because that will make Jeffrey so happy. Mm-hmm. And me too. So rate and review our podcast. Review it. Say that you get free ideas on this podcast. That'll be great. Yeah. Help spread the word. Yeah. Helps keep oh, and the lights subscribe. On. And subscribe. Rate, review, and subscribe. And That's Apple right. podcast is called. Yeah. And we are trying to get on Spotify as well. Because we get people from Android talking to us. That's right. Yeah. And you can also subscribe to our email list. And that will put you on Jeffrey's memo list where he writes an investing memo. 
And we have a few different things planned for the website that we're not going to be talking about. But maybe get on that that list, and we'll give an update to everybody here shortly. Yeah, getting on that list. We aren't going to say what we're going to do, but getting on that list would benefit you. Yes, yes. So if you just give us your email by going to focuscompounding.com, putting your email in that box that says um, to join the memo list, uh, that will definitely help you in terms of future content yes yeah should i see if we have any more questions that came through here on the twitter sphere doesn't look like it okay doesn't look like it so thank you so much to everybody that asked those were that was probably the best q a that we had i mean a lot of good questions there are a lot of great questions here and if you want to we're gonna do this probably i think we should make a point to do it at least once a month as our you know listenership grows i think it's really good to do yeah so if you want to be on the lookout for that follow us at at focused compound and i'll tweet a call for questions and um everyone that asked a question we answered so we'll 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 answer literally every single question that comes through because i think it's a lot of fun so other than that thank you to everybody so much for listening we will see you next wednesday any closing remarks nope that's it that's it Alrighty. have a great week we'll see you next wednesday take care Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.